I hope you brought your Bible with you. And if so, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of John. John's Gospel in the New Testament. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're in the 10th chapter. And uh, as always, it's important to have that open in front of you. Don't take my word for any of this. You want to see that in print as God's Word. And as we are accustomed, I'll read through the passage that we're going to study with our time together, and then we'll pray and ask for the Lord's help to understand and obey it. We're going to begin in verse 11 of chapter 10, the Gospel of John. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This is God's Word. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask you to open the truth of these words in our understanding. Lord, for a passage of Scripture and surely much less a, a message delivered in a Sunday service setting. It doesn't amount to much if we don't have ears to hear. Lord, open our ears. Open our eyes. May we voluntarily allow you to change our minds, to change our actions, to mold us according to your word. Certainly not the other way around. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We ask that you be glorified in our learning what you've said. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Well, this paragraph we just read and what we've been singing about, and this uh, actually attaches backward to last week where we were discussing the first part of this paragraph about the door to the sheepfold. These are all understandable images, and even for the the city folk, the idea of a sheep, a shepherd, a sheepfold, they're all easily recognizable and even, in a limited sense, uh, identifiable. And when we get into what Jesus has said here as not just being the door to the sheepfold, but being the good shepherd, it's hard for us not to think of other passages of Scripture, one that was read last week. And uh, one of the most familiar and well-known, you may have already thought of it in your head, but the 23rd Psalm. 
And if, you're, if you know your Bibles, uh, without even turning, you may know that at the beginning of that psalm, it says, A Psalm of David. King David is the one that wrote the 23rd Psalm. And I would think that in writing that, he was drawing on his own memories and experiences of his time as a shepherd himself, much of which very early in his life, if not a boy. And just to make sure that we don't pattern our understanding of a shepherd uh, to the tune of, of cards and little figurines we see in knick-knack shops. You remember who David was, right? And remember some of the things that we learned about his time as a shepherd came up in a conversation with his brothers after his daddy sent him to the battle where in the Valley of Elah with the Philistines on one side and the Hebrews on the other and this loudmouthed giant in the middle profaning the name of Almighty God, David starts asking questions. How, is, how does this happen? Who's going to let this go on? Why doesn't somebody shut this man up? He goes all the way to the king. and says, I can take care of him. And there's a discussion as to whether or not he should use the king's armor that didn't fit him. But he goes into this, uh, I, I guess what he would call convincing. Because no one thought that this little kid could take care of this big giant. And he said, you don't understand. When I kept my father's sheep... And lions and bears would come after the sheep. The Lord delivered them into my hands. I killed them both with my hands. I'd like to see that in the figurine shop. <laughs> That's a shepherd. And it's no wimpy thing. And then later in his life, when he'd left a lot of that and a lot of his battles and a lot of his hiding in caves he writes out of these image images and these memories he reflects them back to the Lord in praise for the Lord who is his shepherd that never let him want that leaded him in green pastures and beside still waters restored his soul uh, governed him by the crook of God's word, the staff and the rod. And then there's that business of the valley of the shadow of death. All those nights hiding out in caves and so forth. But it's kind of hard for us to read through that knowing what we know of David and the inspiration of Scripture and not help but to think that part of the 23rd Psalm is to help us understand what we're going to read in John 10. Because certainly Jesus is the incarnation of the shepherd in the 23rd Psalm. But that's even amplified as described as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. It's quite a statement. And surely these things are meant to be understood together as an entire book and not just little pieces. So here's what we'll do today. We talked last week about how all the sermons are different, depending on what we study. Well, this one actually lends itself to points. So we'll have four of them today. And I'll give you the first one here uh, up front. There'll be four, but here's how we will organize them. Four ways Jesus is the good shepherd. 
because there's many ways Jesus is the good shepherd, but there are at least four. You could probably pull more than four out of here, but we'll stick with four. They're, cl- they're easily and clearly seen. And I thought I'd mention something that I learned in studying for this in passing that I heard from another pastor. That uh, as far as the Latin Vulgate goes, and I'm pretty sure none of you read very often from the Latin Vulgate, which is a very early translation of the Bible from the Hebrew and Greek into Latin. And even some of the Bible's translations for a while were translated from the Latin into English. Our modern translations go straight from the Greek and the Hebrew into English. Uh, But many, many churches, Catholic churches, still use this. If you don't know Latin, you're kind of lost. But the way that the Latin Vulgate translates the verse we just read, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. When you take the... Greek words and put them into Latin, it's different than if you put them into English. We get good shepherd, but the Latin-speaking people got pastor bonus. What does that mean? Well, a shepherd is a pastor, and a pastor is a shepherd. We use those words somewhat interchangeably in the New Testament. But this is no ordinary pastor. This is the bonus pastor. I thought maybe that would help some of you frame this in your mind. So you might want to write down four ways Jesus is the bonus pastor. Rather than four ways Jesus is the good shepherd. They mean the same thing. But more words help us color it up and make it a more interesting painting. So number one. He lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then in verse 12, we hear of the hired hand, doesn't own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, he leaves. He leaves because he's a hired hand. So in the first three verses, you've got one-third what the good shepherd does and two-thirds what the good shepherd doesn't. And the reason why this hired hand, the hireling, is brought into the picture is only to serve as a contrast between what isn't and what is. So over against the good shepherd and his willingness to lay down his life, there's the image of the hired hand or hireling who doesn't. And this is different than what we learned last week. There were thieves and robbers who would come in some other way than the gate that they were supposed to come through to get to the sheepfold. And it's easy to see them as wicked. They have in their heart or head harm for the flock. To fleece them or kill them or eat them. This isn't the case here. This hireling isn't necessarily wicked. He's just more committed to his own well-being than that of the sheep. That's not where his heart is. So when everything's copacetic, he's happy to draw a check. Everything's dandy. But if danger comes, there's a wolf howling. He's going to bounce. Because this is just not what he signed up for. Would be, I suppose, the best way to put it. And it makes sense. I mean, if we look back here, uh, he doesn't own the sheep. Uh, He cares nothing for the sheep. He's just a hired hand, and he's not even a shepherd. He's a hired hand and not a shepherd. So it's, it's just not his thing. It's not hard for us to understand. 
that a man would be simply interested in what he's paid and trade for this job rather than being interested in the job itself. And I'm sure you can relate to that. Most people have more than one job. Some people start and work their whole lives in the same job, but most people have several of them. You could probably think of some of the jobs that it was very easy for you to just leave every bit of that at work after you punched out. But then there are other jobs you can't do that. For some of us, it's, it, our job is our life. It's our heart. We, we can't believe that we actually get paid to do that. That would be totally different. But here, this guy, it's, it's just a job to him. And what we're looking at is the picture of the good shepherd who's anything but that. So whatever that is, that's not Jesus. The hireling is used as a vivid contrast to the good shepherd or even a decent shepherd. And then you've got Jesus on top of that where we quickly learn that it's much more. Here's something to consider. And this, this would fall naturally out of the, the actual illustration that Jesus is using here. And then later as we move on, the illustration that Jesus is using about real sheep and real shepherd and a real hireling and a real sheepfold, those are going to get left behind because the illustration, as it points to him, is going to be so far removed from those things that the illustration will no longer work. But it, it still works here. For a Palestinian shepherd, that'd be the general area in that day and age, for a Palestinian shepherd to actually give his life in protection of his sheep would have to be thought of as a, as a rarity. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it probably happened as many sheep and as many shepherds and as many years as these things go on. But it would take a lot of wolves or bears or lions. And if that happened, it would surely be an accident, wouldn't it? We would say that a shepherd that's worth his pay would actually endeavor to live for his sheep so he could keep shepherding, right? Not to give his life for the sheep. We can get more sheep. Animals. Nobody dies for animals. Unless maybe, of course, some really fanatic animal rights people who got in the way of a machine or something. I don't know. But this doesn't make sense to the average person. But in this case... This is the specific characteristic of the good shepherd that he purposefully lays his life down for his sheep who aren't animals, but people. See, this is where the illustration begins to separate the good shepherd from any other regular shepherd. As a matter of purpose, voluntary determination, Jesus lays his life down for the sheep. We'll come back to this because it's kind of interwoven. We're going to see the statement, and I lay down my life for the sheep three times through the passage. So from this distinction alone, we can say that a good shepherd does not characteristically give his own life for the sheep, but the good shepherd does. And the distance between a good shepherd... And the good shepherd is infinity. Really. There's more to come. But just right from that position, the, the illustration of 
sheep with wool eating grass in a pen doesn't quite show us the full effect of this good shepherd. That's why he goes on to explain other things. Number two, he knows his sheep and they know him. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. So being the good shepherd, he knows his sheep. And here you can see the separation from the illustration he's using. This is way more than just having a pet name for all the animals in a pen. So that when you call that name, they'll come to you. But they really can't talk to you because they're animals. Well, these are people. And Jesus has reciprocal knowledge of his sheep. Not a shallow knowledge, but an intimate knowledge. Reciprocal means a two-way relationship and a deep relationship at that. Now, if you want to know, well, how deep and how two-way, reciprocal, look at the way Jesus uses to describe it. What does he compare it to? Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Would you say that God the Father and God the Son have a good relationship, a deep relationship, a reciprocal relationship? It would be the definition of relationships. Those relationships have always been. There's never a time where they weren't. They've been in complete love, unity, harmony forever. And Jesus is saying that he's such a good shepherd that this is what we have in store. Now, God knows us like he knows his son, and his son knows us like he knows the father. But right now, we don't know God like the father knows the son or the son knows the father. That's yet to be seen. But that's in store. You read about things like that in Christ's prayer in chapter 17. We get there where... He's in the garden praying for us. It, it's, it's amazing the depth of mystery you, you contemplate in, in the relationship between the Father and the Son and then add us in on that whole dynamic. But that's exactly what's being discussed here. So then once again Jesus adds that he'll lay down his life for the sheep. And here he's not saying that in the third person like he did a few verses earlier. As if to say... Their life is my death, and my death is their life. There's, it's a trade. There's a vicarious thing going on here. He's going to take their place. And we'll get into that a little later as to what all that means. Now, I, I thought about adding this or not, and sometimes uh, I'm surprised at how often I hear the opposite of what I thought. Well, I'll leave this out because it's no good and somebody says it is and then I'll put something in and somebody else, um, my wife's not in here. <laughs> she, she's teaching the children down the hall. Say, you could have left that out. And usually I get into most trouble when what I say doesn't have anything to do with the passage and that's precisely the problem here because this is not a big deal in this passage. Because there's really not much said about the man between the hireling who's not fit to do his job. Well, really, we can't worry about that But so much. I mean, he honestly just doesn't, it's just a job for him. 
And then there's the good shepherd that we can't even understand his goodness, the depth of it. But then there's this shepherd in the middle. And there's a few things tied to this in different places that look as if he's talking about the under-shepherd. The shepherds he's going to leave in charge when he leaves. In fact, we'll close this way with a discussion he has with Peter, who's going to be taking care of his sheep. But right here, I'm, not, I'm, I'm almost convinced that chapter 10 has nothing to do with how you take care of an under-shepherd. Or how an under-shepherd is supposed to take care of sheep. Unless, of course, we're just using the example of the good shepherd and, and making a best effort because we're so pitifully short of the good shepherd. But I can be transparent with you after 18 months. What I'm doing right now is the easy part of this job. And God has, in His mercy and generosity, given me not only an ability to try to explain Scripture, but I get an enjoyment from it. And if I've got enough time in a room, I feel pretty good about coming out of the room with something to say. But that's the easy part. You know what the hard part is? The hard part is having my heart knitted to yours. And there being so many of you. I know what it's like just to try to be a good dad in a home where there's six of us. And, and make sure that the ones that needing uh, bandaged up or the ones that need to be uh, encouraged or having fun. That's a full-time job. And that's just one family out of this whole thing. I don't know my family like my Lord knows my family. But my Lord knows each of you as well as He does His own Father. There's a... There's an infinity's worth of chasm between a shepherd and the good shepherd. And I'm, I'm, I'm faced with the inadequacy of being just a mediocre shepherd. Mediocre shepherd uh, just about every day. Because I, there's not enough hours in the day to study. Make sure you eat well on Sunday and Wednesday. But then be there if only to do nothing but just be there. I am in touch with the frailty of the human frame in that capacity, if no other. Aren't you glad for a good shepherd who knows you better than any human ever could? That's who we look up to. That's what we try our best for. So what could we say about that man in between? I'm not sure. But that's what I thought when I read through this. Number three, he has sheep that others don't know about. And there's some commentators that wonder why this verse is... They've even got some that think that it was stuck in there by John later. I don't know. I think it fits well. But he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And it's very difficult to interpret this any other way than to understand that the knot of this fold refers to people other than Judaism. It seems clear that the fold he's talking about are the Jews that he's worked with since Abraham. But now he's saying there are sheep not of this fold. So who could they possibly be? Well, everybody that's not a Hebrew is a Gentile, right? 
And soon as the spirit falls, the gospel goes to the far corners of everywhere else. Starts in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. To the Jew first and then to the Greek. It all makes sense. This could be none other than a specific reference to the new covenant here. But the other sheep, it's interesting, throughout this whole chapter, there's been an emphasis on the voice of the shepherd. And he says here that these other sheep will listen to his voice. And that's kind of special because a lot of these sheep in the pen of Judaism are not listening to his voice. The end result, however, is that there's one flock and one shepherd. Not a Jewish flock and a Gentile flock, but one flock and one shepherd. The other sheep no longer remain distinct from the existing sheep. There was to be no separate Gentile church from Jewish church. Such you would assume, knowing what you know of Jews and Gentiles, that uh, this would not be a natural unity, but only something the good shepherd could bring about. He'll draw them together. Those that hear his voice and know his name. In other words, this one flock Jesus is talking about will be as wide as the world. Every tribe, tongue, nation. And I thought, well, maybe it'd be helpful to think about how careful we would need to be to think that way. Because our natural inclination is to think that whatever way we do church is the way that God's pleased in having church done, right? Well, this seems to think, because he's, he's saying this in the hearing of Pharisaical Jews, which could you, could you can't find a more proud, pompous group of people that are absolutely convinced that their religion is the best there ever was. And Jesus is saying to them, there's a lot you don't know about. I've got sheep, not of this fold. How inflammatory would that be to these people? That I'm going to bring people into the fold and bypass traditional Judaism as you see it? I mean, that's what they would infer. Now, he's still going to use the law because the law is the schoolmaster. It's what gets us lost. And without being lost, you can't get saved. So he's not throwing any of this away. He's just fulfilling all of this. But in the hearing of it, we would think this has got to make their heads explode, those whose heads have not exploded already. Number four, his authority, or he has authority from his father. So not only does he have sheep that others don't know about, And that he knows his sheep and they know him. And he lays down his life for the sheep. He has authority from the Father. And that has to be fleshed out. What does that mean? Well, I think that this probes the depths of the most mysterious and most majestic of things said yet in John's record. It begins in verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life. That's the third time. But then he adds that I might take it up again. And then that no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. And this charge, this authority, 
I have received from my Father. I'll just put it this way. Nowhere in John's view of Jesus is he said to be in more complete command of each and every situation more clearly or more boldly than right here. Now, many of us would like to think that we're big and bad and strong enough that nobody's going to find me in a parking lot and take my life. I got eyes in the back of my head. Nobody will do that. I carry a weapon. Forget his enemies. Forget their ability, their strength, their cleverness to get the better of him. He says, nobody takes it. In fact, when it's gone, it'll be after I laid it down. And then I'm going to take it back. Now that's authority. Those people that sat at the feet of Jesus during the Sermon on the Mount. Who took a deep breath and said, I never heard anybody speak like this. This man has authority and not as the scribes. They hadn't heard anything yet. This is authority. Our Lord's death will not take place as the result of any mistake on his part, nor the calculation of his enemies on theirs. No man takes his life. He lays it down himself. And some people theologically would think, now wait a minute, in the Old Testament it tells us that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It seems that he is crushed at the Father's doing, which is true. The full wrath for sin was poured out not on the world, but on Christ as the crucifixion is taking place and the lights are going out and rocks are rending and graves are opening up and veils are ripping from top to bottom. But in this place, he says he does this himself. And even the gospel writers, as if to say, he dismisses his own spirit into my hands. I could commend my spirit. This is deep waters of mystery here. How before the foundations of the world, the triune God worked out the plan of redemption and whom is doing what. But I think the early church had it right. This is in Acts 2. This is Peter, first message. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. In your midst, as you yourself saw, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It's his plan. You crucified and killed by hands of lawless men. God did it and you're responsible. If God did it, then I'm off the hook. No, they were just as much a part of it. How does that work? Again, deep waters of mystery here. He goes on later in Acts 4 in his prayer for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Again it's both human responsibility and divine determination. Which is it? Well the Bible just told you twice it's both. Right? Which is it? Who's responsible for your Christian maturity? You? Or God? You wouldn't take credit for where you are now, would you? No way. God's helping you. 
But you wouldn't blame God for the pitiful state you stand in right now, would you? No, that's your part. It's both involved. It's mysterious. God says that you were chosen for Him before the foundation of the world. But at one point, did you not surrender yourself, your faith, your trust, your surrender to this idea that He has provided a gift of salvation to you? Yes. It's amazing how many times the Bible tells us it's both. Of course, in one sense, Jesus' enemies conspired together and killed him. That happened. It's history. But if Jesus' death was no more than the murder at the hands of these evil men, it wouldn't be any more heroic or significant than any other martyr's death, right? So the early Christians had it right. He said, I lay down my life that I might take it up again. I think that makes clear to what extent the good shepherd transcends all other shepherds, however good they may be. A shepherd may be able to die for another person. You may know the names of people, whether in battle or something as simple as trying to save somebody from drowning, traded their life for someone else's. You could say that's a good man. But the good man, the good shepherd, he takes his life back after it's over. To answer the question, what motivates this action? Because it seems as though there's, there's an authorization made, permission to, to lay down one's life, to take it back again. What is the driving force behind the only action that can guarantee life and abundance for the sinful men and women of this planet? What's behind it? On what basis did they make this decision? I think we might get a glimpse of it in these verses. For this reason, and that's, that's kind of how we try to get at it, because it's not that the Father withholds His love to the Son until He lays down His life, and not until... Because it's already been planned to happen from eternity past. That I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. The Father loves me because of this. If you want to know on what basis does God the Father authorize His Son to give up his life on the basis of the Father's love for the Son who loves his flock. I'll let you give your life up for the likes of those created beings who turned their back on us. Because I love you. It's a triune God. It's kind of hard to see which direction. Okay. Three persons, one God. But that's the extent of it, I think. How does God love a world? John 3.16. By allowing His Son to die for it. But then to take it back. So bound up in this mystery is the Father's authorization for the Son's death. To enable him to be the good shepherd. 
So I believe we've left more theologically on the table than we've taken out of this text. This is very deep. But let's read ahead into next week's passage for one final thought. This is the way we'll close. Look what happened in verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. And there's some big words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. He'd already been said to have had a demon. I like the way the ESV puts that. We get that word right off the bat, don't we? Insane. Why should we listen to him? Verse 21, others, so there's a difference here, division, said these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. You got a group of people that say this isn't how a demon speaks. This is authority. Not like we've heard from the Pharisees. There are people listening here. And they don't buy that. And then look what they say. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So not only is this not the way a demon-possessed man speaks, they recognize truth, authority in what Jesus is saying. It's almost like they're thinking out loud. Like they're speaking as they're thinking. As if to say, wait a minute. Demons don't give sight to the blind. Hasn't he just proven to be everything he just said he was by what he did for that man born blind? And to go back and speak with him after those guys threw him out of the synagogue? He looks an awful lot like a good shepherd. And this theme runs all through the scriptures. We're going to see it over and over again, even in the New Testament. And one of my favorites, and we'll get here, and uh, I don't worry at all about robbing another sermon because there's enough drama in that passage for a month of Sundays. But toward the end, when you've got Peter, who denied Jesus three times... And for all he's known for days is that he's ruined the best thing that ever happened to his life. His relationship with, with Jesus is, is wrecked. But then he sees him, jumps into the water, swims ashore. There's a fish breakfast waiting on them. And it seems as though Jesus gets Peter alone by himself and he begins to repair what was broken with Peter by reassuring him the same number of times that he was denied. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Three times. Each time, Jesus says in a, just a nuanced, different way, what? Feed my sheep. You want to show me you love me? Take care of what I love most. You think you've ruined your life? You've only gotten started. Peter, let's get back to work. It's shepherding, taking care of what I gave my life for and whom I'll come back for. That's what he said. Feed my sheep, there's nothing more important. There's one more thing I want to show you, but we're going to leave that for the benediction. Between that and now, I should pray and then we'll sing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you for an, a figure of speech to paint in our mind a glimpse of what you really are. 
and the blessings we truly have as recipients of the, the loving affection of the Good Shepherd. Lord, may we who have been given responsibility to care for sheep, even if that's the sheep that live in our home or the sheep in our Sunday school class or the sheep at our Awana table or the sheep in our VBS room or the people sitting in pews. Lord, we know we're not sufficient for this task, but we ask for your your sustaining presence to keep us close and to keep us clean. Lord, thank you for this encouragement this morning. Prepare us for the week to come where again we'll gather at a service to say goodbye. Lord, I ask for your comfort to those who grieve. Lord, thank you for our time together in this room. We ask all this in your name. Amen.